The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Ferris. Hey. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also get in touch by sending us a tweet at SpexCast or sending an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. On April 30th, NASA announced its selection of three U.S. companies to develop human landers to put astronauts on the lunar surface by 2024 for the Artemis program. In this episode, we'll take a look at each of these three companies' concepts and how they'll fit into NASA's plan for sustainable human exploration of the moon. Yeah, so the Human Landing System, or HLS, is NASA's approach to delivering humans to the lunar surface by 2024 and also maintaining a sustainable presence. So this is uh, the continuation of the the Next Step contract, and it all falls under the Artemis program that NASA announced. They announced solicitations back in September 30th of 2019, and the awards were just announced on April 30th. And so again, their goal is to have demonstration missions by 2024, so to land the first woman and another man on the surface of the moon, and have sustainable operations by 2026. Right. So the goal is to get to the moon quickly and basically, uh, you know, put people back there. But then once we get there, have the ability to have sustainable operations like maybe a moon base or be able to go back regularly to the lunar surface, not just a one off. So there are three companies that were selected to build landers uh, for the human landing system, and they'll each receive partial funding to continue development of their concepts. So this is going to work similar to how commercial crew uh, is working, where there's a potential scenario where uh, only one of these companies makes it to the end. But uh, for now, they're competing against the requirements and not necessarily competing against each other to make it to the end. Yeah. So how exactly were these proposals selected? Uh, NASA created a source evaluation panel. And so uh, this was a a panel, a group that uh, took whatever the contract uh, bids were uh, from the solicitation and compared them against three major focus areas. So there was uh, the technical approach, which is the primary factor, which is the most important. And then factor two is total evaluated price. And factor three is management approach. And they make a mention in the source evaluation document that while technical approach is the most important, um, if Factor number two, the price and management approach combined would be more important than the technical approach. So they're all they're in order, but they're all very important. Another important thing to note is this award was for about the award period of this contract is 10 months. And so and it's the main purpose of it is to further develop these concepts. And so it's not tied necessarily or particularly with landing on the moon on in 2024 is just for further work to get them get these contractors there. And uh, this document, the source evaluation panel or a, a summary of it, uh, is available to everyone on the internet. Uh, and it was written by 
Stephen Jerzyk, um, who's been at NASA for a long time and really involved in these programs. And a lot of the information that we'll be using today comes from that document and some of the other publicly available information on these different concepts. Yes. And Steve Jerzyk is currently the Associate Administrator at NASA. Um, I did want to say uh, one other thing, uh, and that one confusing thing about this, before we get started talking about the details of all these different concepts, uh, one thing that I was really confused by is how this fits in with NASA SLS, uh, the Space Launch System, and Orion, and Gateway. Um, in the past, we've kind of dug a little bit into the difference between Artemis and things like Gateway and Orion. And this is that the point of the HLS or the, the lander part is where the crew gets on Orion, uh, which is launched on SLS. Then the crew transfers from Orion to the lander and then does their moon stuff and comes back to Earth by getting back on Orion and then going going back to Earth. So that's separate from Gateway and Orion is part of it. But this concept only talks about how the astronauts get from orbit around the moon to the surface and back to lunar orbit. Yeah, and the important detail is that the gateway is no longer required for the 2024 moon landing. There's plans to use it for the sustainable operations. They're still going to build it. Uh, NASA's still putting out contracts to build the modules and the cargo resupply, but the gateway will most likely not be used for the first 2024 landing. Right. Okay. I just wanted to clear the air there because that was really confusing for me at first. Uh, I wanted to clarify. So let's talk about the, the three winners. So first up is Blue Origin, which is labeled themselves as the national team. Yeah. Uh, so Blue Origin is partnered with Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper to put together their concept. And uh, they've been awarded $579 million uh, for this concept, which is the most out of the three companies that were um, that won this award. But it, it's, I don't know, it's a team. It's kind of weird. Uh, is Blue Origin the leader? Like, what, what's the deal? Yeah, Blue Origin's the, the general contractor, prime contractor. It's definitely interesting to see Blue Origin partner with Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. But I suppose they have partnered, partnered with ULA in the past, or are still partnered with them. Yeah, ULA is Lockheed Martin and Boeing like a joint joint effort. Uh, here, Blue Origin has worked with ULA on the BE-4 engine um, for Vulcan. And now they're partnering with just Lockheed Martin and then Northrop Grumman and Draper. It seems like a weird team, uh, but I don't know. It's a national team. <laughs> um, but I mean, thinking back to NASA in the Apollo days, NASA spread out a bunch uh, across the nation with different centers specializing in different areas. So maybe they're kind of taking that approach too and diversifying uh, based on technical expertise, maybe. Um, but yeah, I thought that was really interesting and surprising. Another company that won uh, the award, the second of the three, was Dynetics. Um, and their concept was pitched in partnership with Sierra Nevada Corporation. Uh, and they've been awarded $253 million, which is the second highest of the three. 
Yeah, I had never heard of Dynetics uh, before this, but I think we've heard Sierra Nevada Corporation before. And it's a really interesting uh, proposal that we'll get into when we talk about the technical details. But uh, they the renderings they released look like you would build a rocket lander in Kerbal Space Program. I'm pretty They've sure got, I built this exact lander in Kerbal Space Program. Okay. <laughs> They've got <laughs> like, solar panels sticking straight up. They have uh, drop tanks that pop off. And so it is a really cool, uh, interesting take on a, a landing system. Definitely. And as a note here, Dynetics is a subsidiary of Lidos, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Lidos. And yeah. Um, both of them are, are uh, Department of Defense contractors. Um, so I, I looked up uh, Dynetics. Again, I had never heard of them either. Um, but Dynetics has been working with Aerojet Rocketdyne on propulsion upgrades, um, the AR-1 and propulsion upgrades for SLS. So um, I, I haven't seen them. I guess they're partnering with Sierra Nevada to like put together a lander concept that Sierra Nevada has experience with Dream Chaser. But yeah, I don't know. Newcomer and they're right in here and look pretty competitive. So yeah. Yeah. And then the third recipient is SpaceX with a lunar variant of Starship. They were awarded $135 million. And uh, we get to see a new version of the Starship being rendered and put together. Yeah. I wonder how they're going to name that one. (laughs) Uh. So overall, you know, this is a big departure from how Apollo worked, where NASA Mm -hmm. was the prime contractor that did the design work and just went out to companies to build it. Um, we, it's a very similar approach to commercial crew and commercial cargo. And while there's, uh, three competitors currently on the contract, it remains to be seen whether, uh, one, two, or all three will actually get fully funded to build a lander by 2024. Yeah. So, uh, if, I mean, if you have a favorite so far, let us know on, on Twitter or by email. Um, but we'll, let's get into the technical approach and, each one, uh, the national team, Dynetics and SpaceX, have very, very different technical designs from three-stage landers to single massive landing uh, descent and ascent stages. So, uh, TJ, can you take us through the first one with Blue Origin? Yeah. So Blue Origin was awarded a acceptable technical rating uh, during the selection process. And under their technical design concept, Uh, NASA mentioned that they had a highly effective human-centric approach for its rendezvous proximity operations docking and undocking system that potentially reduces crew workload and allows crew to monitor overall vehicle performance. And it also exceeds requirements for initial habitation capability and landing accuracy. And so it's really interesting to see uh, that their proposal, potentially highly automated, uh, we don't know the exact baseline requirements for how, how much uh, volume these landers needed, but the proposal um, handles that without a problem. And so uh, their their current design is a, a very capable lander. Um, they also so, uh, go ahead, Phil. Wait, so before, um, can you describe the actual system a little bit? Like, is this Blue Moon? Is this the same thing? So this is uh, based around Blue Moon, but it's going to be different, potentially larger. So it's a three-stage lander. And so there's a in-space uh, transfer stage, which will get the vehicle uh, from 
a lunar orbit with Orion uh, down close enough to the lunar surface. And then there's an, a an ascent and a descent stage similar to the Apollo lunar excursion module. So the uh, descent stage is going to be based off Blue Moon. It's going to have a BE-7 engine powered by hydrogen and oxygen. That will actually land it on the surface. And then the ascent module, which actually has the crew compartments, um, which will be their kind of their base of operations while they're on the surface, and then that will take them back into orbit. And then it will dock with the transfer module and then bring it back to Orion, and then Orion will take them home. And so all these components can be launched separately, and they'll probably be launched on New Glenn or uh, ULA's Falcon. Gotcha. So it sounds like Blue Moon mixed with uh, Apollo. It's like a modern version of the Lunar Excursion Module and, and that whole architecture. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, and, and it's it's leveraging smaller rockets, so it can be brought up in individual parts. Um, it doesn't have to be brought to the moon with like a command module or service module. It's got its own transfer propellant. The blue moon concept is for like an autonomous cargo lander, so no human landing. So this is, you know, human rated, a um, little bit larger. Um, and it's really interesting that their partnership with Draper, Draper is bringing in a lot of expertise on guidance, navigation and control. And uh, they have a long history working with NASA on different projects. And so, you know, Blue Origin is able to kind of leverage that experience for all their parts and they've uh, contracted the transfer, the transfer module and the ascent module to Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin. And so they're really focusing on the lander aspect, which again is the highest risk uh, component. And um, it's a really interesting, flexible model they're going through. Right. So according to the SCP um, document from NASA, the source evaluation panel, um, that that document identified some significant strengths and significant weaknesses that contributed to the selection. Yeah. So with regards to schedule, their one significant strength is based on demonstrated extensive experience. And so while Blue Origin hasn't demonstrated uh, experience, their partners, uh, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin, have. And so because they're part of one large proposal, NASA is is ranking them together uh, the entire proposal and having uh, more more likely to stay on schedule with less risk. Um, the one significant weakness is the complexity for the power and propulsion system. And so they, NASA says it has a low technology read, readiness level or TRL, which means it either hasn't been tested uh, in like full scale or it hasn't flown in space. It doesn't have flight heritage. And then the blue origin descent element, which is that lander, um, has, uh, according to NASA, includes novel approaches for achieving overall performance gains, but comes at the expense of higher complexity with minimal historical experience and no flight history. So again, it's this trade-off of the, the lander is brand new technology, it's exciting, it has a chance to outperform its design goals, but it's also a big unknown and a big risk. But uh, NASA does um, give them a significant strength rating for early system demonstration because Blue Origin plans to lend Blue Origin plans to land the descent element in 2023, so a year before they would land with humans and at the same landing site. So because there's all this risk potentially in the lander itself, they're going to land just the descent stage, test all the systems, hopefully work out all the kinks. 
And that should make the overall system much more safe when they actually send people on it. Right. Do it a rehearsal. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. Yeah. NASA also gave them a significant strength for launch and mission operations. Uh, and they mentioned a detailed plan for training and certification of launch personnel. And the they go on to mention that uh, Blue Origin has this plan to include lots of, of simulators. They're going to build like low fidelity simulators early on and eventually move to like full scale, like flight like uh, simulators. And so that should be great for training the astronauts and the pilots. And there's also, you know, more uh, documentation and planning with regards to, you know, actually launching and uh, flying the, the craft throughout the whole mission. Mm hmm. So it's good to th it's good to see them planning for that ahead of of the mission, which is great. And I think that that brings in their experience with Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin that have done this kind of thing before. Right. Does it mention explicitly what areas Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman would support in? They're building the individual modules officially. I see. But the whole team is working on the the system. Right. So yeah, working with three company even if so working with three companies under one team like it's not three teams under one company it's three companies under one team uh and each one could have its own internal schedule slip or or technical difficulties and then they all have to integrate together and we all know how tough integration is uh just on a technical level but then doing that across company lines um it's, I mean, it's bold. Yeah, it, yeah. it's definitely a... And it'd be four companies. And, and downsides. Yeah, four, yeah, four, four total four companies. companies. Yeah. And not three, four. Yeah, like if, if any one module uh, gets delayed, the entire system gets delayed, uh, the descent element done by Blue Origin, um, if other parts are delayed, potentially later than 2023, they can still do their test flight and reduce the risk on descent. Um, but the, again, the whole, all three elements have to be done and working together at the same time in order for them to hit that deadline of 2024. Right. I wonder, is that, that is not mentioned in the document that that might be necessarily a, a downside or a risk, right? Yeah, and NASA gives them credit that Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin have a demonstrated history of delivering things uh, on time and and have experience. Right. So it's seen more as a plus than a negative overall, it seems to be, with no mention of schedule risk due to having multiple companies working together. Right. But definitely will be interesting to see. I guess we won't be able to really know until until we see what the progress looks like. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see after 10 months what the progress is on each of those three modules and if there have been any uh, hiccups or unexpected delays after just 10 months. The interesting thing too, I guess we can go through the other two teams, but there's this contra the, the the solicitation does not mention any specific kind of goals for these companies to hit other than continued development. Yeah, all, all of the work is actually in their proposals, uh, which hasn't been published. And so basically this contract just pays uh, pays for work up till 10 months in the future. And so there's they have detailed proposals and timelines, but we haven't seen what those fully are yet. 
the technical evaluation of Blue Origin and the national team's proposal was marked acceptable, um, which is tied with our next company, SpaceX, who also received an acceptable technical rating. Uh, Ferris, do you want to talk about SpaceX's approach here? So SpaceX's approach is to use a lunar variant of Starship. And um, there are mentions in the SCP documents that SpaceX will be using Starship and refueling it in orbit. So launching it by using Super Heavy, getting into into orbit, refueling it, and then maneuvering to low Earth orbit to where it'll prepare for a landing with astronauts. This lunar variant is meant for space operations. It's not meant to return to Earth. It has a larger RCS system, so thrusters on the side for control. It has no fins, since we don't have an atmosphere, no heat shield, multiple airlocks, and elevator system for reaching the surface. There's probably more that is different with the Starship, but these are the main things that we can see. Um, the Starship also includes, and per SCP documentation, a, spacer, a spacious cabin and two airlocks for astronaut moonwalks. Um, the general theme here is Starship is a bit overkill for the first landing. Yeah. But it gets a lot of credit um, from NASA for future potential to allow sustainable operations on lunar surface. And sustainability is one of the areas where Starship has ranked high because it facilitates landing larger payloads that will facilitate more science, more EVA operations. Um, and, and that's kind of one of the biggest areas where Starship has exceeded requirements. Right. So it reminds me a lot of how early on SpaceX, uh, with when they were talking about their Crew Dragon capsule, that they were talking about different variants for different missions, like Gray Dragon to do a flyby of the moon and Red Dragon to land on Mars using, um, you know, propulsive landing and things. And it sounds like uh, a similar idea here where the variants of Starship um, could become a thing. We already know there's going to be variants for SpaceX's proposed nominal operations of, um, you know, taking people to space and coming back to Earth and refueling in orbit. Like that was uh, from the outset of the whole Starship concept. That was part of it in space refueling and stuff. So, um, yeah, I. it still looks weird. You know, it still looks uh, very retro future sci-fi uh, being this massive stainless steel spaceship with how, oh, how do you get out of it? Well, there's an elevator. It sounds very, it looks like it's off the cover of some popular science magazine from 1945. Yeah, Definitely. the proposal is extremely interesting. Uh, NASA also mentions, like, they again, really, the lunar starship is completely overkill for 2024, but it has so much potential for that sustainable requirement of the program that they gave it a lot of credit for. They talk about the airlocks, how there's there's two separate airlocks, and then you can have up to four people putting on uh, EVA suits at the same time. Uh, the airlocks don't go directly into the crew living quarters, so there's less chance of lunar dust getting into where the astronauts are living and sleeping. They also mentioned that uh, 
it's basically able to go anywhere on the moon at any time. And so they can handle any kind of, of solar angle. They can handle any kind of landing site. And so it's it's super capable and flexible and exceeds all of NASA's requirements. Um, but the, the downside is the, the risk, right? Because of all the technologies, all the, the speed of development. And NASA does give them a, a significant strength in their proposed uh, development um, requirements. So that because Lunar Starship is a variant of Starship, uh, they're going to fly a demonstration mission in orbit with Starship. They're going to fly super heavy. And SpaceX even says they want to land a lunar version of Starship in 2022 uh, to, to reduce that risk. And so because they're going to be doing a lot of ground tests, which we're already seeing in Boca Chica with testing Raptors and testing the tanks, and then a lot of orbitals in space tests, if those things happen and they happen quick enough, a lot of that risk can be brought down. But the huge unknown is, is schedule risk, right? Like if, if it takes six years or eight years versus four years, that doesn't solve NASA's hard requirement of 2024. One thing I, I don't quite understand, though, is how Orion fits into this. So like at the start, we mentioned that astronauts are going to go to lunar orbit with Orion and then be ready to board uh, the human landing system, whatever, whichever one it may be and then go to the surface and back. Um, so with Starship, uh, like, I guess with the airlocks in place that astronauts would go to it, like it would dock with Orion or something like that, and then astronauts would go from Orion to Starship because it, it's not going to return to Earth, so they're going to have to do that transfer there, and that, that story seems a little weak. I don't, I don't quite understand. From reading the documentation, it doesn't seem to be very clear or very explicit to how the astronauts will will get to the starship, whether they will launch on the super heavy and be on and the starship so the, from the very the beginning. All the will launch on Orion. Like that's NASA's requirement. They're hard right. hard requirement on that. I suppose then that answers the question. Yeah, I mean, I just uh, I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't more about how the astronauts are going to get into Starship and off of it, except for the elevator. Definitely will be strange to see an Orion docking with Starship and having crew go from Orion to Starship and back. Yeah, Starship is just so much more massive than Orion, even with its service module. I almost want to see a rendering of that. I wonder yeah. what the size comparison would look like. Okay. Um, so let's move on now to our last of the, the three proposals that were selected. And this is Dynetics uh, with Sierra Nevada Corporation, uh, which is the only company to get a very good rating for their technical approach. Dynetics has proposed uh, a single element that does both the ascent and descent capabilities with multiple modular propellant vehicles uh, pre-positioned to fuel the engines at different points in the mission. So like we, I mean, in not NASA speak, drop tanks. Um, and there's a crew cabin that sits low to the surface when it lands. Uh, so when the lander actually reaches the surface, uh, a hatch opens and the astronauts can do a short climb down to the surface or uh, transport their tools and samples and cargo. Dynetics HLS system supports docking with both Orion and Gateway. 
and will get a fuel top off before descending to the surface. After the surface expedition, the entire vehicle returns back to Orion. And the H- the Dynetics HLS is rocket is technically rocket agnostic, capable of launching on uh, a number of different commercial rockets. In the proposal, they paired it with Vulcan. So the major strengths that were identified in the uh, SCP was that it was crew-centric in terms of uh, like practicality and physicality with the astronauts sitting low to the surface, making it simpler or safer to get in and out of the vehicle. You don't need an elevator, for example. And also in terms of the control systems and actually operating it with strategically placed windows and different control panels placed with the astronaut in mind. Another uh, major strength that was identified was that this system was built to interface with Gateway and the crew module could be swapped with a cargo module so that they're really pushing for that sustainability and the fact that with that little redesign between different configurations, Dynetics proposed that this same lander with the same operations procedure could be used to transport cargo or dock with uh, Gateway and things like that. But uh, the major weakness was that a lot of the systems are low maturity and are very complex. And uh, quoting here, many of its individual subsystems will have to be developed at a speed that does not align with the historical experience for the development of analogous systems that perform similar functions. So basically, Dynetics is claiming to build all these complex things on a timeline where NASA has seen those same type of systems take significantly longer. Yeah, I think that really comes from the fact that like Dynetics doesn't have the historical experience that right. the national team and SpaceX have. So there's there's not pre-existing systems they can leverage. They have to basically reinvent the wheel for their entire spacecraft, even though the design's really compelling and, and useful. You could argue that this comment is also applicable to both other companies, given that you know, they have launches in the next two or three years to land on the moon with landers that have not yet been developed. Right. But I think the, the where this is coming from is that um, Dynetics and Sierra Nevada haven't really shown that they have been able to build these particular systems, landing systems, crew systems before, where SpaceX has built um, Crew Dragon and Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman and um, Blue Origin have shown a lot of capability already building vehicles with this type of thing. Northrop Grumman has all the experience with the Cygnus spacecraft that they're bringing over. So they already have a craft that can do autonomous docking. They have a craft that has maneuvering thrusters, navigation, etc. One thing that does fold into coming uh, to this with not as much experience, though, is something that was identified as a strength, which was um, how their proposal exceeds, meets and exceeds um, a lot of the requirements, especially with propulsion and mass. The proposal apparently is very low mass and has a capable performance with propulsion so that, you know, if you have a lot of margin on that side, you could you can envision more mission flexibility with terms of what you're bringing to the surface if you have a lot of mass margin um, or where you go with a lot of propellant margin, things like that. It um, Mission flexibility and effectiveness were two things that were identified here as strengths. Another kind of area where this design is 
pretty effective is it is in its reusability other than the drop tanks it's a single stage right i did want to ask you guys what you thought about having a crew centric design um with crew dragon for spacex commercial crew they went with basically a astronauts ride on the spaceship and it flies ride on the spacecraft and it flies itself um and in you know the days the last time we landed on the moon it was a very manual process where you you know they actually had a joystick to do the last uh final stage of of landing do you think that it makes sense to have more automated systems land the spacecraft on the surface or do you think it makes more sense to have the astronauts be well trained and have full control and and really good interfaces for operating the spacecraft i think now with 2020s computing technology it makes sense to be fully um automated with regards to landing you know we've seen uh spacex uh handle autonomous landings of its rockets in the atmosphere uh if you go back to the 1960s the saturn V instrumentation unit was only giving trajectory updates to the rocket every five seconds so the whole computer would process a new vector every five seconds pass that to the engines and now we can do the same process hundreds of times per second uh, with regards to rockets and you know blue origin and some other companies have done a lot of really exciting stuff with regards to like propulsive landing very similar to landers fully autonomous with high navigation we've seen uh, uh, spacecraft going out to asteroids and doing autonomous landing on the surface of the asteroid, which is really exciting. And so I think um, if you have proper sensors uh, and you have uh, a reliable design where the computer, the sensors aren't going to fail mid landing, that it is, um, it can be safer. But um, I think having humans in the loop and positioning those humans to have success if the computer uh, fails is also a really good idea, right? P- putting the people in a, an aluminum can with no windows and no clue about where they're going on, they have to blindly trust the computer. If they can, if they can see, if they can provide control input, that's a, a nice backup to have. And another thing to note also is a lot of these designs are also meant to move cargo. And so you have to have autonomous systems in place anyhow, if you're going to have payloads moving back and forth. And those autonomous systems also get a lot of um, kind of heritage, right? You, you'll, you'll be able to iterate on them, see them operate, see where they might fall short. So you get a lot of iteration there when, you know, as opposed to if you have systems built around manual control or manual input, those systems may not see as much iteration or may have to spend more time on the ground to iterate upon them. Yeah, I, I like the dynamics design just from a, a user interface perspective of we're, landing humans on the surface of the moon we want them to be able to conduct evas quickly and easily and we also want them to be able to bring back samples easily and so by designing the the craft to to make that objective easier um i think it helps with the crew uh you know the the spacex starship approach with a giant crane and and that (laughs) kind of approach is makes it extremely difficult uh, on the astronauts right um, I think the reason why uh, Dynetics out of all these got a very good rating in the technical approach um, was basically that uh, there's a statement in here, um, quote, well, the power and prop system overall presents substantial technical and schedule risk 
It is also the case that its approach is exactly the kind of innovative solution that NASA sought through the HLS solicitation. Their, their final design, you know, is extremely innovative, which is nice. So the, the proposed HLS landers are some of the most exciting spacecraft designs that we've seen in a long time. Uh, which is your favorite? Uh, do you think NASA evaluated each proposal fairly? Let us know on Twitter at Specscast or send an email to Specscast at gmail.com. Yeah, there's way more discussion here, so uh, love to have it. So another factor in NASA's selection was each company's management approach, and the winners couldn't be more different here. Starting with the national team, which is Blue Origin, uh, Norfolk Grumman, Draper, and Lockheed Martin, they were awarded a very good management rating, and NASA specified two strengths. One of that is their commercial approach, which they said was a significant strength, and they're quoted as saying uh, they aimed to use HLS capabilities and technologies to accelerate the development of a cislunar economy by making cargo and crew missions more affordable, available, and efficient. And I think that ties really well into Blue Origin's goal of millions of people living and working in space, which we've heard over and over and over whenever Blue Origin presents. Uh, so what are you guys' thoughts on that, that goal with regards to this contract? I mean, I think that should be the goal. Um, like, the goal by these companies developing HLS, I think it would they would be remiss to like just develop HLS without projecting not just uh, the sustainability aspect with Gateway, but how these technologies could be used for commercial reasons, for example, or um, the tech core technologies could be extended to other programs. So, yeah, I mean, I I mean, I I kind of don't really understand that development of a cislunar economy part of it uh, with respect to the national team's technical approach. But I think the goal is right. I just don't, I'm not connecting the dots between how the national team's actual, you know, three-stage lander actually contributes to that. If anything, I, I'm kind of, yeah, I agree with you, Phil. It, it is kind of strange that... that. I mean, maybe it's because you're bringing so many companies with you and so everybody in the industry will have to, you know, quote unquote, everybody in the industry will also have to develop and uh, these capabilities for cislunar exploration. Maybe maybe that's it. But I would imagine with three stages that, and you might not need it. I suppose maybe the transfer stage may not be necessary if you had the gateway, but even though with two stages, I'd imagine that would incur some cost for putting things onto the surface with that lack of reusability. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into the pricing estimates in a little bit, but uh, the idea is with these commercial uh, landers that they're going to be more efficient than if the government just did it. Um, uh, okay. But it's interesting. It's hard to have a cislunar economy when there's only one buyer, and that buyer being NASA, right? We've NASA's got three major initiatives. They have Gateway, they have Artemis with the HLS program, and they also have commercial lunar supply. And so NASA's generating this demand of we want to land cargo on the moon, we want to land people on the moon, and we're going to have people at a space station, which are going to require supplies. But where are the other organic demands coming from, right? There's lots of small companies and big companies that are trying to serve NASA's demand. But where is a company that's saying, hey, we're going to be doing cool stuff in cislunar space, we, we will pay other people to do that. I don't see that um, economy really springing up 
in the near term. But uh, ho hopefully uh, people can innovate some unique business cases with regards to the moon. One other question um, is how the past performance of each member of the national team really will translate into the development of this spacecraft. Like Lockheed Martin has experience with the LEM, right? But they're not building the lander module. Blue Origin is going to be building the lander module. So does that really translate from past experience to present? Yeah, so so NASA mentioned that their strength was past performance, specifically Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin, uh, on the management factor. And so in the technical approach, they're like, yeah, like these companies have built spacecraft, the spacecraft have performed, we're reusing those systems that reduce a lot of the risk. But in those uh, on the management side, um, those companies are now subcontractors under Blue Origin. And so it remains to be seen whether Blue Origin acting as the general contractor will be able to have the same level of experience and keep to the same schedules and things like that. And so that's an, that's an open question that I have. NASA seems to think so based on uh, some of their partners' past performance, but it is a different uh, environment, different kind of contract, different kind of work. And so it, it, in my opinion, it remains to, be, remains to be seen whether those skills transfer over. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move on to Dynetics, which also got a very good rating for its management. Um, Dynetics is used to working with the DoD and subcontracting work to large subcontractor teams. And this was one of the main strengths identified where it will utilize small businesses subcontracted out to really achieve its goal. So NASA seems to think that this is uh, a benefit for them for management-wise since they have experience working with subcontractors, which could potentially be risky if you don't have everything in-house. Um, but I guess Dynetics' experience doing that kind of mitigates that risk. And another significant strength that Dynetics has going for them is they've specifically called out that they will have NASA be very involved in the design process. Significantly, they mentioned giving NASA full access to SharePoint systems, which is their uh, data their data sharing uh, platform, uh, Microsoft SharePoint, and now allowing NASA to have access to SharePoint systems and inviting NASA to participate in all integrated product teams and other program management reviews. So yeah, personally, I think that working with uh, a lot of subcontractors could be risky. Uh, just because I, I think working with bringing everything in house, you have full control and everything, but also you absorb all of the things, all of the problems when things go wrong. But the the solicitation says that subcontracting like this will be advent quote advantageous to the government during contract performance and beyond. I think you mentioned earlier, Phil, that this is kind of maybe TJ, you did. This is kind of similar to how NASA operates, where they have multiple centers in different states to kind of garner political support and ensure that programs continue. I wonder if, from from NASA assessment standpoint, having more stakeholders is maybe more of a good thing because it can ensure that the program continues moving. I mean, mm -hmm. this is kind That's of similar point. to how, if you, you know, if you look at the rating for 
the national team, it also gets a very good rating. And if you look at the parties involved, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Blue Origin, you, would, you can imagine that they would have a lot of influence to can make sure Artemis continues. Right. Yeah, Dynetics, uh, specifically their strength within uh, small business. And so they're, they're saying that instead of relying on like big defense contractors as their subcontractors, they're going to be working with like extremely small companies, like under 500 people, that kind of thing. And my thinking is like, well, that's great for stimulating small business. Um, when you're relying on these small businesses, there's a risk of them collapsing, right? right like right. something can happen. Um, and then your contractor that you're relying on no longer exists or is unable to provide the part and that could lead to delays. And so, you know, it is uh, an interesting kind of, of risk versus yeah. having l- big, large contractors. Uh, speaking of delays, one thing that caught my eye is the NASA, like heavy NASA involvement in the design process. Like, great. That means your customer, you know, has uh, a say and you can uh, reorient yourself if, in terms of the designs to make sure you're meeting what the customer wants. But when it comes to NASA specifically and having them be so involved, to me, that just screams delays and slowing down the process. Because if you can't really proceed or iterate or change your design without getting an approval or bringing NASA in the loop, that sounds like it would just have a really dramatic effect on the momentum that a design team can carry through their process. Yeah. There's an interesting note. Uh, so NASA in the evaluation is extremely happy about the visibility into Dynetics proposal uh, one thing they mentioned was that Dynetics proposed a government purpose rights license for their software and their intellectual property. And that was listed as a significant strength. And um, kind of digging into that, what that means is that Dynetics is, has already gone through basically like what we're going to develop, like the software, the hardware, et cetera, and said that like this is our intellectual property this is what NASA will be able to keep. And the government purpose rights is like for all of our software with regards to landing, all of our simulation software, all of our testing, all of this work that we're going to do, that we're that Dynetics is going to pay for or NASA is going to be partially pay for, NASA gets a exclusive license. Uh, well, NASA gets a special license that they can do with it whatever they'd like for government purposes. And so like under this um, agreement, if Dynetics takes their landing software, uh, NASA now has a license to, to make their own lander and use that software, even though Dynetics paid for it. Interesting. And while this, you know, from a business perspective, seems a little weird, I think this is a great win for NASA because not only is Dynetics producing a spacecraft to provide a service to deliver humans to the moon, they're also developing technology that NASA will be able to repurpose and, and uh, reuse for far into the future on different right, projects like, right for like a mars lander or a lander on a, a moon around a different planet or something they could also use dynetics software and and does this apply to hardware as well yes yes and it's really interesting because this is kind of the inverse of what nasa's relationship usually is where nasa's software and and data and data sets are freely used by these companies which gives those companies a leg up so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. This is Dynetics basically kind of giving back, uh, which is really nice. 
I and think Dianetics might... got awarded, uh, you know, a very good rating because of that strength. I think um, that's really important. Like, I think that's kind of understated uh, in the proposal, uh, or at least in the summary document. But um, personally, that that's a concern I've had a lot with um, having NASA be the customer and uh, awarding contracts to private companies to continue to develop space uh, technologies is that uh, in the past, uh, for, you know, 40 years, it was exactly what you said, where NASA would provide technical expertise and information that companies would use to get a leg up, but there wasn't that continued feedback cycle. Um, and I think that I think these government purpose rights to these new technologies are very important uh, if we want to ensure that we continue past the moon, past Mars, you know, we continue forward, really accelerating space technology. I guess what is interesting or what could be interesting with the government purpose right license is that, you know, what are the terms and conditions? What does it actually mean? Is, is NASA allowed to give this design to a different contractor to manufacture if needed? Don't know. And do systems like the SLS already have government purpose rights associated with them? SLS is fully government designed. So they, the government has full like, IP rights. Right, because like it's it's government developed, government designed. The other interesting thing is we don't really get to see what the breakdown, what the details, financial details of some of these proposals are. And so, you know, for example, we'll speak, we'll talk about SpaceX in a moment. But under SpaceX's proposal, they they actually fund part of the development efforts because you know they're in, they're interested in funding starship so the government is just kind of providing some more funds to use starship for other purposes and to have a variant of it made but under that situation you know it, it's the other way around where the funding is coming also from the contractor right it's it's not just nasa right let's talk about spacex in terms of ratings spacex gets a lower rating compared to the other two t- two contractors where they get an acceptable rating. A few of the things cited there is there's a few line items that contribute to schedule risk. And really mainly it is schedule risk. A few experiences that are cited are kind of experiences with commercial crew where delays have occurred that resulted in timelines being extended. And another kind of contracting experience that is cited there too is the Air Force Orbital Suborbital Program 3 um, with Falcon Heavy falling behind and adding to the risk. Here's a quote from the document. SpaceX was evaluated by the SCP as having a significant weakness for its proposed overall architecture and concept of operations in relation to schedule risk. And then somewhere further in the document, it mentions that this requires numerous highly complex launch, rendezvous, and fueling operations, which all must succeed in quick succession in order to successfully execute on this approach. And so kind of some of the schedule risk is also driven by the need to refuel in space and do some of these things that are, haven't been done before. And so this kind of lowers SpaceX's rating. But on the, on the positive side, SCP also mentions that you know, there's, there's substantial corporate contribution to fund significant aspects of um, Starship concept. So there's money coming from SpaceX for this. And they get 
heavy emphasis there's a heavy emphasis there too for commercialization strategy and that being that you know the starship platform itself will be used for launching payloads from earth it'll be used for refueling there's is spacex's business model relies on starship being the next available launch platform so in terms of commercialization they get um a lot of pluses there yeah i think the spacex console of operations is is really uh, a sticking point for them because not only do they need to develop the lunar lander version of starship they have to develop super heavy they have to develop a tanker version of starship they have to launch the lunar the lunar starship they have to refuel it multiple times and then they have to send the lunar starship to the moon and so all of those external things that other teams don't have to deal with, right? They have their launcher and they have their lander and then they're done. But there's this whole Starship-based system that helps us to get built. And, you know, SpaceX is saying, yeah, like, we're going to pay for this anyway. We're using it for our commercial satellite business, commercial launch. Like, trust us, we'll build it. Uh, but NASA is like, we're only going to pay for the lander bit if we don't see these other uh aspects of the system built the whole system falls falls apart and then with regards to the timeline they talk about how commercial cargo did really well it progressed really quickly was very cheap but then the commercial con the commercial crew contract was extremely delayed and the falcon heavy was extremely delayed but uh, in the report they mentioned that like even though those two programs were delayed the experience spacex gained from progressing to those two programs is valuable and in the future might pan out uh, on this contract. So it's still a negative, but they they weigh the experience and the growing pains as a positive as well. It's a very high risk, high reward situation for, for SpaceX and Starship because like you said, it, it's kind of a house of cards in terms of schedule and development where you know if they don't get one piece of the puzzle working, the whole system kind of is, you know, in the wind. Um, but I, I hope it'll, I hope it'll work out. <laughs> I think this is different than commercial cargo with development of the Falcon nine and dragon, uh, cargo. And I think it's also different than commercial crew with the development of crew dragon, because like you said, NASA is really, really only cares about, the landing on the moon part and they and SpaceX really won't be getting government support for all the other infrastructure. Um, so they're kind of constraining SpaceX is constraining themselves to from previously when developing Starship was their own timeline, like the internal goals and um, for getting a Starship that can take cargo, you know, beyond low earth orbit um, and doing orbital refueling and or point to point travel. That was all their own timeline. But now the orbital refueling, the super heavy rocket, getting it all tested is all compressed into the 2024. I think what's interesting, the mention of commercial crew confuses me a bit, I suppose. Why? Because, I mean, delays in commercial crew are not space... You know, they contribute. The technical development is a, like the the time it takes to develop these systems is a contributor to the delays. But that wasn't the only reason there were delays. There was also funding shortages, and 
timelines being extended. And if you look at the other contractor, also in commercial crew, Boeing, their timeline is even further behind SpaceX. And so one can say SpaceX is just meeting meeting the goals and is operating at the very least at the at the level that other contractors are operating. And so I think that's that's fair, but with regards to commercial crew, the recent delay SpaceX has seen with the DM1 Dragon exploding, if that were to happen during the HLS program where NASA has a hard 2024 deadline, a 6-month or a 9-month delay there would push them out of the goal. Yeah. And so But I mean there there are trade-offs and and what the interesting thing is like the SpaceX proposal is the perfect solution to the 2026 sustainable lunar operations goal but everyone has to be playing by the rapid demonstration mission by 2024 timeline i can i can imagine that the other contractors for example if boeing had trouble with commercial crew i can imagine that northrop lockheed or boeing or uh, blue origin may also have similar issues developing a human rated lander and Dynetics may also experience similar things. I mean, all it takes is one failed test and investigation into the failed test to extend the, the, the timeline by a few months and miss the goal. Right, right. Do you as a listener think that NASA is fairly evaluating these management performance metrics? And do you also think that Dynetics government purpose rights license is too extreme? Let us know on Twitter at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. We have a few more topics to discuss. The first one being the price. All these different companies have proposed vastly different technical concepts with drastically different management styles, and they all have to get some money to do that. Uh, The most expensive one was the national team, right? Yeah, so there is no explicit pricing numbers in any of the released information. So we have no final price tag on what it's going to cost from April 30th, 2020 to when they land in 2024. We have two interesting tidbits that were the proposal. One is that uh, an independent evaluation of the cost of a government-developed human landing system uh, was done, and the each proposal is ranked relative to that. So the national team's proposal ranks in the 35th percentile. So it's 35% the cost of a fully government-developed uh, human landing system. And they mentioned that the Dynetics and SpaceX proposals are under 10% of that cap. So we don't actually know exactly what that is. The second bit of information is that NASA, through contract negotiations with Blue Origin, was able to lower uh, Blue Origin's proposal's total contract price. So the the full price to actually land humans on the moon by $300 million without any impact materially to any of the requirements. And that's reflected in the rewards we saw. So for 10 months of work, the national team uh, won over $500 million and Dynetics and SpaceX both won around 234 Dynetics and 138 million for SpaceX. And so the the national team proposal uh, appears to be the one that can be done the quickest. Uh, It has a little bit of risk, but it has some legacy contractors, but it's by far the most expensive by probably three times more. Was that mentioned as like 
a significant strength or weakness? Like, did that impact the selection process? Besides lowering the price, but did the act of lowering the price without significant uh, changes to the concept, like, that does that mean that they proposed, uh, they gave it a price tag that was just marked up? Like, did that impact the selection process at all? That seems crazy to me, especially $300 million. Yeah, we have no no hard pricing information. So there's only 300, there's only two references to pricing in, in either document. Uh, the actual quote from the source selection statement is that under Blue Origin's proposal, under price assessment, they concur with the proposal being, uh, the price being reasonable and balanced. And in addition, it's notable that through pr- price negotiations and in accordance with NASA's stated negotiation position, Blue Origin's final proposal contained a price reduction in excess of $300 million for the base period of performance without any corresponding change to its technical or management approach. So any changes in the price did not affect the technical approach or the management approach. Uh, so all those scores remained consistent, even though the, wow. the total tr- price dropped by 300. So the individual specifics might have changed. We don't know. We don't. We don't have the full uh, SEP report that talks about every single item. We just have the highlights and notable remarks. Interesting. I see. Yeah, having any really significant pricing conversations is very difficult at this point with the amount of data available because we don't really even know. In the national team may be more expensive at the moment, up to three times, perhaps, from what this shows. But we also don't know where that expense is going. I mean, you know, some of it might be going to l- lower risk or to risk mitigation. Right. Um, can, and so, so we can't really... It, it, this is very speculative. Right. And even, I mean, $300 million could be peanuts compared to the overall total contract, uh, for all we know. Yeah, and it looks, you know, looking at the commercial crew program, because that's a very similar structure, um, both Boeing and, and SpaceX, through their development um, agreement with NASA, said, by the end of this, we're going to have human-rated spacecraft to take people to the space station. Uh, SpaceX decided to do an in-flight abort test. Boeing did not. And so an apples-to-apples comparison between all three is impossible to do because we don't have the information. And even NASA wasn't comparing these proposals against each other. They had their requirements in the solicitation, and then they did their comparison. And these three are not competing. They were, These three are not competing and we're not competing against each other. <clears throat> um, Ten months from now, when it's time to give one or all three of these companies more money, NASA's uh, perspective might change based on how each company is doing, but uh, we just don't have the details of what this four-year process is going to look like for each company. Right. All right, so that can that concludes our discussion of the human landing system uh, concepts from Blue Origin and the national team SpaceX and Dynetics. Uh, to close out the show, I wanted to get your thoughts, uh, Ferris and TJ, like your opinions on each of the concepts or which one that you're currently going to be watching the closest. So my thoughts on the three proposals, I'm really excited that all three of these 
are extremely different. So when NASA first did the solicitation, they released a baseline proposal, which says, well, if NASA was going to do this, they would have three modules. They'd have an ascent module, a descent module, and a uh, transit module. And the Blue Origin National Team proposal fits that bill pretty closely, but Dynetics and SpaceX are completely different. And so it's really great to see, given the goal of, of returning humans to the surface of the moon by 2024, the different approaches companies came up with. Um, with regards to the timeline, I think with SpaceX, SpaceX always says that they're going to be doing doing things things soon, and they just have a they have a, a long track track a, they have a long track record of never hitting those times. And so while their their speed and their pace have increased, uh, to give them a deadline of 2024. I think is going to be tough for them. And even in their proposal, they mentioned doing a full test flight of an uncrewed lunar starship in 2022. So they're saying that they're going to have the whole thing built and ready to land within two years from now. And a year and a half, whole, dude. It's already halfway through 2020. That's, that, that's true. So within a year and a half and, uh, and then have another two years in the contract. And so that to me is, screams super optimistic. Um, but the Dynetics proposal, it's really interesting. Um, they're a relatively unknown uh, competitor, although Sierra Nevada Corporation has been uh, working on, on crude spaceflight for a while. But they have a really interesting technical approach. It's great to see something that's astronaut friendly. Uh, it's great to see something that brings in this like semi-reusable uh, design. And also the fact that it looks like something that you would make in Kerbal Space Program um, to, to land on the moon um, is really cool, too. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that, um, honestly, all these concepts are so different that it's hard to really compare them. But exactly what you said, it sounds like National Team went and looked at the government proposal for how the government would do it. And then said, oh, we can do that better and did it better um, and cheaper and, and using their heritage and stuff. It looks like SpaceX was like, oh, we're, we're already doing Starship. We could probably do this and meet the requirements. And then they go and make a lunar variant. Uh, but I actually really like Dynetics' proposal where they took the requirements, wiped the slate clean, and come up with this uh, really what seems to me is being very innovative and new and um, kind of outside the past experience. So like national team is really complex, a lot of moving parts, reminds me a lot of the Apollo days. Um, Starship is overkill, <laughs> you know, it's just like with an exclamation point. Um, but I, I really do want to see Starship succeed. And this is a huge contributor to, you know, accelerating that development, which is awesome. Uh, but I don't know. The Dynetics one is just interesting. Um, one thing about SpaceX that I really, really, really hope to see is that in, so far they've been doing all these tests with Starship out in Boca Chica with, I mean, it's too big to really do it inside a building. So people have been able to see and watch and Elon's been active on Twitter talking about the tests they're doing. And, uh, I really hope that that would continue into seeing the lunar variant or the tests of it continue and being able to have a window into that design process. That's what I really, really, really want. 
Um, I'm skeptical of uh, Dynetics uh, because of their lack of uh, real experience. Like I haven't heard of them. And also I think that they are going to be very, very, very slowed down by NASA. Like so much. <laughs> and it sounds like on, on paper, it sounds like, oh, a great idea. NASA knows a lot. They've got really smart people. Um, but I think that any time that that actually plays out, it just makes things just bog down. And you really don't get that rapid iteration that as a designing designer engineer that you really want to see to keep momentum up. And then, uh, I don't know. I think the blue, ironically, I think the Blue Origin national team is the wild card for me. Um, so, I mean, that's that's all I got. What about you, Ferris? I think it's cool that we have three different recipients for this, um, for kind of the human landing system. I think three of them have different things to offer. I think, we, yeah, like you said, it's we're already halfway through 2020. If there's a landing that's going to happen even by 2024, that's quite ambitious. I think everyone has a pretty big challenge ahead of them, be it you know SpaceX or the national team or Dynetics. Um, so I think it's just good to see three different flavors of human landing systems, and hopefully, you know, the three ponies can stay in the race until, you know, until we can see significant progress and maybe see landing systems get ready to go. My the one I'm still most excited about, I would say, is is the lunar variant of Starship. Just because of all the cargo capacity, the ability to carry bigger crews, long term, that is that's kind of what is essential for building a sustainable cis lunar economy or having a sustainable presence is to be able to get people and cargo there. But if your goal is to get to you know, get things on the moon by 2024, though, that does become a challenge. And I guess if you're trying to optimize, it really depends on what you're trying to optimize for, either the short term and meeting the 2024 goal or maybe longer term. Um, I also like that the Starship development is very public, just like you said, Phil, just videos of it. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of demos planned. A lot of them are very public. Um, I like the iteration timeline with all the different pieces of the Starship platform all the different flights and you know, the proposed demo landing. But that all these things do present a schedule risk. And we've seen that before with the crew program. When it comes to the national team, I think I think there is, you know, in terms of schedule risk, there is some mitigation there by having people or companies that have had a lot of experience building these systems, even though the experience might be I don't know, 50 years old from the lunar Apollo days. Um, but I think just having all these players with experience coming together might, with with the very, um, let's see, realistic plan perhaps, or a system that has, that's similar to stuff that's already been developed. I think having that, yeah, if I was trying to optimize for 2024, that might be a team I would bet on. Um, and then to me, the wild card is Dynetics. It's a really cool system. It's a lot more reusable than um, 
Blue Origins, and it's from a new player, relatively new in in developing landing systems. So it, it's I think it'd be really exciting to see a new player kind of um, show up on the field as as a developer of landing systems. All right, so uh, listeners, why don't you let us know what which one of these lander concepts you are rooting for and why? Um, and also, are you surprised that Boeing didn't get selected for the human landing system, even though they made a proposal? Uh, let us know on Twitter at Specscast or send an email to Specscast at gmail.com. And uh, that's it for this episode of Specscast. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to get future ones on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcast app. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry on our website, blog.specscast.com. Also, let us know what you think of the show. Leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast service, and reach out to us, please, uh, on Twitter at Specscast, or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Goodbye.